Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Making a heartfelt plea for unity and an end to America's uncivil war, 78-year-old Joe Biden was inaugurated on Wednesday as the 46th President of the United States, bringing the curtain down on the four tempestuous years of Donald Trump's presidency. To all those who did not support us, let me say this. Hear me out as we move forward. Take a measure of me and my heart. If you still disagree, so be it. That's democracy. Few who listened to Biden's emotional 21-minute address on the steps of the US Capitol would doubt the sincerity of his desire to end the bitter recriminations of the recent past and heal a wounded nation. But with many millions of Americans apparently continuing to believe the baseless claim that November's election was stolen from Donald Trump, the obstacles Biden must overcome if he is to succeed in his mission are daunting indeed. Adding to the sense of a presidency born amidst national crisis, there was a heavy military presence in Washington, D.C. for Wednesday's inauguration, which took place two weeks after the riots of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from an American political scientist about the deep divisions and dark historical currents that January 6th revealed. This is going to be a 10 or 20 year transition in the United States of really trying to reassert the rule of law as a norm because there's such a long history, both in over centuries, but also in the last four years of endorsing extra legal tactics to advance one's political ends. But first, we're going to our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. She was at the inauguration ceremony and joins me now. Suzanne, watching it from afar on television, I really felt the weight of the moment yesterday. It came across as a very consequential and indeed a very warm and moving ceremony. What was it like to be there? Yes, Chris. Well, it was it was a fantastic experience to be there. I was delighted kind of to witness it, particularly because there have been so many restrictions around this inauguration. Obviously, uh, because of COVID, there were fewer, much, much fewer people at the event and also because of the attack on the Capitol uh, just two weeks ago. So uh, there were a lot of precautions. I had to get a COVID test, obviously, and lots of security from early morning. But it was a, it was a really special uh, moment, as it always is every four years. It's always a moment uh, of change, obviously, and of ritual. And that was very much in evidence on Wednesday. And of course, I don't think it got enough uh, mentioned, but as a musician, the the music was fantastic. Not just the, uh, the the rock stars, but also obviously the military bands. Nobody does military music like that, like the Americans. So yeah, a fantastic event. And also, it was interesting just people watching. Um, it was a reminder of this new administration. It's not just Biden, but his whole team that's that's coming in now. So you know, Tony Blinken, the new Secretary of State. I saw him chatting to the new UN ambassador, Linda Thomas Greenfield. Pete Buttigieg and his husband Chaston, they were there. He's going to be remarkably only the first openly gay member of cabinet in American history. And Samantha Power, uh, Dublin-born Samantha, who uh, is going to be heading up USAID. So it is, I think, a reminder that we really are on the cusp of, of a new regime here in Washington. And in a sense, Donald Trump, I think, was very far from everybody's minds yesterday. And uh, the fact that he wasn't there... I think, helped that feeling, actually. It was a very unusual inauguration in many respects. And the things you mentioned there, the pandemic, of course, meant that there was no public audience and and the absence of of Donald Trump, who held a fairly pathetic ceremony, really, at a military airbase nearby. And then he flew off to Florida with the the strains of Frank Sinatra's My Way playing in the background. Um, But do you think, as you just said, his absence, actually, maybe the ceremony was the better for it? It did, as I say. His, His absence was notable, particularly, I think it was more notable when they then moved to Arlington Cemetery to lay a wreath. That was the the next activity after the inauguration itself. And there you had the former presidents, Barack Obama, George Bush, 
and Bill Clinton gathered there with their spouses. And I think that was more the sense that, you know, Donald Trump was opting out of an American tradition and of American ritual that should go beyond politics. And I think he will be judged very badly for that. But as I say, his absence, even though in one way, I think what was interesting was that Biden didn't shy away from um some of the challenges facing the country. And he mentioned himself, as did Amy Klobuchar, who did a great job introducing, effectively emceeing the event, uh, what had happened at the Capitol two weeks ago. So he didn't, I, I was surprised. I thought maybe he would just want to move beyond that, but he didn't. He addressed that in the first opening sentences, really, of his speech. So that was always there in the background. But I think the presence of Trump would have given a, a different emphasis on the event and perhaps taken away a lot of the attention on this this history-making moment, particularly, I think, with Kamala Harris, who, you know, it's important to remember, is is now the highest-ranking woman ever in the United States as vice president. So I think that was a very uh, poignant and special moment when she was called out as a, you know, vice president and she was greeted by Barack Obama. I think that was a very moving moment. Biden's speech did indeed confront the events of recent weeks head-on, didn't it? I was thinking, if you, if you ever look back in that speech or somebody in the future looking back, you, you would know when you read the script that it was delivered at a moment of kind of a real trauma for, for the United States. Yeah, it, it definitely was. I mean, he we knew that he was going to uh, bring a message of unity. And in fact, his whole election campaign had been built on this, that he could be the person to unite the country. He obviously has branched his credentials as a, as a former senator who had a reputation for working uh, constructively with Republicans. And um, I think that message ultimately worked and ended up being, you know, as I was writing in the Irish Times, he was the man for the moment in the end, because that is what America needed at that moment. To put it another way, I don't think if, if Donald Trump had not been the president, I don't think we would be having a President Biden. I think his candidacy was very much, he says it himself, a reaction to Donald Trump. Uh, he talks a lot about he decided to run after Charlottesville in 2017. So yeah, you're you're right about his speech. I mean, he's a, he's a very good speech. He has a very good speechwriter, obviously, but he's a very he's very good at delivering speeches, and he has done a lot of them over his his career. Um, but yes, he talked about the need for unity. He talked. He said we must end the civil war that pits red against blue, rural versus or urban, conservative versus liberal. And he said, you know, the the um, the ability and willingness to stand in the other person's shoes. Um, he also talked, he did take a few swipes though at Donald Trump without mentioning him. He said, we must reject the culture in which facts are man- manipulated and even manufactured. So that was evidently a reference to Trump without mentioning him, him directly. Um, it was also one, I liked his phrase when he talked about this kind of uniquely American attitude, if you like, of optimism. It was a good line. I mean, it, it was reminding Americans kind of of who they are. I mean, their relentless optimism is still here in this country, despite what's happened in the last four years, for good or for bad, some people would say. But he was trying to tap that back into it and, and really give the message that America is always in the process of being formed and it's an unfinished project and it's an imperfect project, but we need to kind of strive to be better. So, yeah, I think it was a very powerful, it, it, it met the moment. Now, having delivered his speech, he immediately got to work signing a flurry of executive orders, reversing policy decisions taken by his predecessor. What were the most significant measures he introduced, do you think? Yeah, these were well flagged in advance, but it was still remarkable to see the speed at which he signed these orders and, and we're expecting a, a, you know, a, a pretty packed schedule of policy announcements over the next 10 days or so. But I think probably the most important, obviously, is his uh, commitment to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement and to rejoin the WHO, the, the, the World Health Organization. 
Both of those obviously signal Joe Biden's intention to bring America back to a, a, a participatory role, a leadership role around the world, and is is a significant break with uh, Donald Trump's policy of, of America first, which many people believe was kind of America alone. And it also actually means something in terms of, of climate change. I mean, he really is prioritizing climate change in his administration. Um, obviously, his appointment as John Kerry, the former Secretary of State of um, a Special Envoy on Climate, is is a hugely important statement. And the fact that uh, Kerry will be a member of the National Security Council as well shows uh, the level at which this this post is, is being considered by, by Biden. And he's also made a number of kind of less high profile uh, appointment in the climate change uh, field across the administration. So the former head of the EPA under Obama, she's going to be kind of heading up the domestic side of climate change, how to make sure climate change priorities are embedded in all aspects of federal government. So if you like, the kind of domestic counterpart to Kerry's more outward facing role. So that's very significant. Um, rejoining the WHO, of course, it was expected, I suppose, but still significant. Um, also, he un- undid some of President Trump's orders on immigration, particularly the uh, ban that Donald Trump introduced in the first weeks of his own presidency, banning immigration from a number of Muslim-majority countries. He revoked that. But actually, I finally get to the point, I think the most significant, if you like, or the most interesting, probably is what he did on immigration. Now, this isn't, ki- this isn't an executive order as such. This is more an act that he wants to bring to, co- to Congress, which is going to be a reform of the immigration system. I don't think many of us expected that kind of ambitious uh, policy from Joe Biden. Yes, we were expecting some moves on immigration. For example, he's also going to work to restore DACA, the program that protects uh, young people who came to the United States illegally as children. So we knew he was going to do that. But what he's proposing is actually a much more broader reform of America's, it has to be said, extremely uh, complex and problematic immigration system. Now, this will not be easy because other presidents have tried and failed to uh, bring forward immigration form and they they reform and then they very nearly got there, but it's always kind of stopped somewhere along the line in Congress, either in the Senate or the House. It will be good news for undocumented Irish, for example, because he is proposing an eight eight year path to citizenship for undocumented people in the country. But again, we're only at the beginning of that process. And, you know, will he rue the day when he when he announced this big plan? We'll see. But I think it is part of his, his bold move at the beginning to try and be radical, to try and be optimistic and to try and change things, even though the reality of that might be very difficult when it comes to getting legislation through. And I think you made the point, Suzanne, in an analysis piece that you wrote that while the undocumented Irish may be... Um beneficiaries of his immigration reforms, he probably has a particular eye on the Hispanic um, community, doesn't he? Because that's a a vote he hasn't performed particularly well with with Hispanics, um, certainly not in the last election, in the November election. That's absolutely true. I think Democrats um, have to do a lot of soul searching because there has been an expectation in this country for years that the changing demographics in America, which sees a huge number of Hispanic people and many of them turning 18 in the next few years will eventually work electorally for the Democrats because there's an assumption that these, you know, this group, uh, ethnic group would always vote Democrat. That is not the case. We saw in November that uh, there was a big backlash in certain parts of the country in particular against uh, Democrats and a lot of them voted for Donald Trump. So that is something that the Democrats need to to worry about and need to work on. But yeah, I think there will be a, a will in Congress. But interestingly, 
on immigration, as far as I'm aware, they need a super majority in the Senate for that, so 60 votes. So he would need support of Republicans. And the la- at one point, Barack Obama actually got the support of Republicans for an immigration package. Uh, people like John McCain, and there were about 10 Republicans who voted with Democrats on it, and it then uh, fell in the House. But the but the worry now for Democrats is that a lot of those Republicans, moderate Republicans who vote who who backed Obama's immigration plan have now either passed away or have left office. So it's going to be more difficult, I think, now to get that plan through when they do get to that point of bringing it to Congress. In regard to his plea for unity, Suzanne, which was as we said was a major theme of his speech, and as I said at the beginning, you couldn't doubt his sincerity in that. And indeed, he has a long track record in in working across the political divide in Congress and so on. But I did hear the point made a few times yesterday that a plea on its own won't cut it, that he needs to do something concrete to reach out to the millions of Americans, 74 million who voted for Donald Trump, many of whom don't believe he's a legitimate president. What concrete steps do you think he can take, um, I suppose, to to convince those people that he does have their interests at heart? Well, I think a lot will be um, how he deals with Congress and that if if he's prepared, this is going to be his difficulty, if he's prepared to make concessions to Republican demands. So that's going to be the big challenge for him. And if he can show that, look, I conceded on this issue and this is what Republicans and their voters wanted, I think he can show that he genuinely is willing to listen to the concerns of other people. But of course, his problem is going to be on the other side, on his left flank, because you're going to have a lot of vocal members of Congress, people like Bernie Sanders, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who want more, who want to be more liberal plans from Joe Biden. Um, And and actually so far, which is kind of a a worry for a lot of conservatives in the country, is that he has been quite radical in what he suggested, relatively speaking. But he has, you know, on climate change, on the idea of of raising the federal minimum wage, on this huge uh, COVID $1.9 trillion package that he wants to get through through Congress uh, for to tackle the COVID pandemic. So, you know, I think people are going to are in wait and see mode about, you know, how far left is he prepared to go? Um, and because he's got such tight numbers, he's going to need Republican support for some things. He, you know, so he's going to have to reach out to them. But I think it's interesting, a kind of a, a general analytical point I was just been thinking about since the inauguration. I think it was Roy Blunt who made the point, the senator on the stage in the inauguration, which I think is a good reminder, you know, this ele- an election happens every four years and one party wins and one party loses. You know, that's the reality. And Joe Biden did win. Democrats are in control and they w- he won sizably. So he's every right to go ahead with his policies and his agenda because he won the election. And even though I think, you know, Joe Biden, as you're saying there, Chris, absolutely is, he's himself saying he wants to unify the country. Let's not underestimate the fact that he also wants to push through his agenda. Well, of course, the focus has switched to Joe Biden and his agenda. Donald Trump isn't out of the news yet. And and he has, of course, been impeached for a second time by the House of Representatives for his perceived role in inciting the the mob that invaded the Capitol a a fortnight ago. What's the latest, Suzanne, on when his impeachment uh, trial might take place in the Senate? Yeah, it's been over the last, since the inauguration, you know, so much has been happening in Washington. But one of the things that did happen was that Kamala Harris swore in the new Democratic senators, her own uh, replacement, and the two Democrats who won the Senate runoffs in Georgia. So now Democrats, since the night of the inauguration, are now in control of the Senate. So that means that Democrats will have a lot of control over the rules of how this impeachment trial works. Now, um, 
again, because of the tight numbers, you know, there has been discussions between uh, Schumer and Mitch McConnell, who's now the minority leader, the top Republican, on how to progress. Because he does, I mean, that's the way politics works. He needs them on board, Republicans on board, so that the system kind of works once they start the impeachment. Um, So we're expecting at this point that Nancy Pelosi, who she's held on to the article of impeachment against Trump, and uh, she will then at some point transfer that to the Senate and then the impeachment trial will begin. And now we're expecting that to happen next week at some point. There are also some questions about how it's going to work. We're not quite sure who's going to preside over it. Is it going to be the Chief Justice, John Roberts, as, as was the case the last time, for example, because the president is actually, the president being impeached is not actually in power. So this is unprecedented. Um, but the, the challenge now, of course, for Biden is to make sure that this does not overshadow his first few weeks in office. Um, and they're still looking at options to maybe split the time in the Senate between the impeachment trial one day and regular business another day or you know, split it during the day or, or something of that kind so that it doesn't uh, overcome, uh, as I say, overshadow its presidency. It, it's also unclear what the outcome of the trial will be. So two thirds of the Senate need to convict, um, need to vote to convict Donald Trump. Uh, it's very unclear if they have the votes. Most people will probably say they don't have the votes at this point. Mitch McConnell, the top Republican, has played his cards close to his chest, even though he has really broken with Donald Trump in the last few weeks. We still don't know how he's going to vote. He's going to hold a lot of sway over his caucus. So, you know, if we he could he he can't he does have the power. He you know, people like McConnell have the votes lined up before it gets to the floor. You know, he is working, he could be working the phones, he could be, you know, doing small deals on the side to get people on board to vote the way he wants them to vote essentially so that conversation could be happening behind the scenes but we don't know at the moment we don't know what way he's going to go uh, but we probably have about five or six republicans who will, who will convict donald trump but whether we have the 17 is, is a tall order and that could well depend on on mitch mcconnell's position ultimately could it I think so, because I think he just has a lot of sway. And it's almost like when you when something like the immigration bill, for example, over the years, when that's been passed, what happens is that behind the scenes negotiations go on and certain senators, it, it sounds grubby, but I, I think this is the way it works. Certain senators might extract concessions from McConnell on another thing, another bit of a bill they don't like that happens to affect their constituents in Arkansas or something. So, you know, there is a way of working behind the scenes to to get a certain vote or to to, to encourage or incentivize people to vote a certain way. Now, McConnell has said this is a matter of conscience, but, you know, he's a wily operator. The other thing is he might wait to see how, which way the wind is blowing before he commits to how he's going to vote. So he might be kind of sounding out, look, what is the feeling here? Are Republicans going to go against Trump or not? Uh, even though so many of them, well, not so many, but some of them have broken with Trump, there, it's, there is still a, um, a rational argument to be made, which senators like Tom Cotton have made, which that this is, you know, a a problematic impeachment trial and it, it was rushed through the House and there wasn't a proper inquiry and that you really, can you actually impeach a president who's already left? So they, they can say that they're... Um, opposing this measure, not because of anything about Donald Trump, but because they're opposing the process. And, you know, you could make a logical argument on about that on the Senate floor. So that might be the route that, that Mitch McConnell, for example, chooses to go down. And if Trump is convicted by the Senate, um, does that bar him from seeking the presidency again? Or does a separate vote have to take place on that? Yeah. So the way it works is that a separate vote would then take place if he's imp- if he's convicted. And that only needs a simple majority. So you only need 51 votes for that. Um, and that would bar him from running for office again. This is unprecedented, but there have been cases, I think, of a judge. Uh, so judges and other officials can also be impeached. It doesn't ha- happen that often, but it, but it does. 
Um, and there has been a case before where a judge had been prevented from running office again, for office again. Um, so yeah, that's that's possible. And of course, again, putting my cynical politics hat on, this actually might be an incentive for Republicans who were very loyal to Donald Trump, people like Senator Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, to actually vote to convict him, because that would mean it would take Donald Trump out of the running in the 2024 election campaign and would give those people who have made no secrets of their presidential ambitions a kind of clear run at the White House. So that's another factor that I think will come into play behind the scenes as they're weighing up how to how to vote in this key vote. And finally, Suzanne, on that very point, Trump did say to his small band of supporters as he was jumping on the plane yesterday that he would be back in some form. What do you think he meant by that? Yeah, it's, it's hard to know. This the, the, the latest kind of theory might be that I think there could be something in this, which is, would he look to set up a, a, a political party, a different political party? And it's interesting, um, which I must kind of go back and confirm, but in, in the last couple of weeks, I, I distinctly heard Sarah Palin, the former vice president candidate, say on Fox News that she believed of the time for a new political party. Um, because there obviously is a major uh, split now happening in the Republican Party. The MAGA brigade, the the, the red hat-wearing real Trump loyalists, and then the more traditional Republicans, the people like Mitch McConnell and, you know, the regular Republicans, your regular Republican in Kansas who's always going to vote Republican but was not necessarily, you know, enamoured with Donald Trump. So I think his problem now is that he is, it's like everything in life, Chris, unfortunately, we're all replaceable. And once you move on to a job, people just move on. There's that sense here in Washington that, you know, people are forgetting about Donald Trump already. Obviously, the fact he's lost his Twitter platform is a major issue because he does not have that communication uh, funnel. And and what may happen now is that you're going to get an even more polarised media climate where you have Fox News, who last night, after the inauguration, you know, were highly, highly critical, to put it mildly, about Joe Biden and, and completely dismissive of Kamala Harris, that you may just see people maybe just turning to this new source uh, and maybe Donald Trump will continue to engage with Fox. But uh, there was a lot of speculation about his own media operation as well. That would take a lot of money and a lot of there would be a lot of regulatory hurdles there. But that's also possible. But I think the problem for him now will be, uh, you know, financial and legal and what he is facing now in terms of the ongoing investigation in New York about his tax affairs. I mean, that could be a real problem for him. But at the moment, the Trump camp seems to have decamped to Florida. Uh, his daughter, Ivanka, and her husband, Jared Kushner, bought, bought a site down in Miami. So there's a lot of speculations that that's going to be their center of gravity. Obviously, Florida has, you know, he won Florida and a lot of support for Trump down there. So, you know, my money would be on a political run by Ivanka if I had to pick anything. Uh, at some point, maybe for governor of Florida, maybe for the Senate in Florida. I mean, I think that's very possible in the coming years. OK, so we're likely to be talking about this family for a little while yet. Suzanne in Washington, thank you. Now, the violent events that took place in Washington on January 6th have been called a riot, an insurrection and even a coup. But Omar Wasso, a professor at Princeton University, says what happened was more like one of the racist lynch mobs that terrorised African-Americans until well into the 20th century. He talked to our producer Declan Conlon and gave him his view that January 6th was no aberration, but rather the latest manifestation of old American divides over who gets to deliver justice and who gets to wield power. My fellow Americans, we have to be different than this. America has to be better than this. 
My name is Omar Wasso. I'm an assistant professor in the political science department at Princeton University, and my research focuses on protest movements, racial politics, and to a lesser degree, statistics. One of the most common things people said again and again under the Trump administration on both the left and the right is some version of that's un-American. And I think those kinds of comments tend to miss a really important way in which the kinds of violence and racism and brutality that we see are deeply American, as are the push for equality and kind of expanding the sphere of who is a citizen, who is enfranchised. Those two traditions are two ideologies and they're two political coalitions that are constantly kind of swapping power in America. Lost in the chaos yesterday was the fact that Democrats are now set to take control of the U.S. Senate after winning both Senate runoff elections in Georgia. And so what we can see on January 6th is a, a black man and a Jewish man winning in the formerly Confederate South in the Senate, right? A kind of product of um, a group trying to expand who's included in the citizenry and who can vote a deeply egalitarian kind of push also met with the violence of a predominantly white, uh, often uh, people wearing signs, you know, neo-Nazi imagery and white supremacist imagery, Confederate flag in the Capitol, that that tradition was also very much alive that they met on January 6th in, in the, the, you know, temporally, that speaks to both traditions being deeply American and very much active in our current politics. There are a couple of key ways in which January 6th was like a lynch mob. There's all sorts of strange kind of celebratory dimensions, and that actually is very much like what we saw in lynch mobs uh, in the past, in the 1800s in the United States, too. People took photos of themselves, much like people were taking selfies on January 6th. There was a kind of what in the 1800s was called a festival of violence, and you saw a similar kind of air of uh, excitement about violence, but also delight in the moment. People kept souvenirs around lynchings, and that also is something we saw um, in on January 6th. A lynch mob in American history was a you know group, typically a, a large collection of men who would go out and execute a kind of rough justice or mob justice by executing somebody, often hanging them from a tree or from a gallows, bypassing any formal criminal procedure, just going straight to killing the person. On January 6th, people were explicitly saying they wanted to hang Mike Pence. They wanted to execute Speaker Pelosi. There was a gallows with a noose set up, and that's an echo not only of this lynch mob passed in the United States, but a recent event in which there was a threat that was disrupted in the United States to kidnap the governor of Michigan, put her in a kind of mock trial, and then execute her, right? So there's a little bit of a precedent of far-right activists wanting to engage in a kind of swift justice trial and execution. There's great scholarship on lynching in the United States, and one of the leading scholars, a gentleman named Michael Pfeiffer, has done work where he s describes America as in the middle of a kind of transition. For some regions, due process becomes the standard form of criminal justice, but in other regions, the South, the West, there was much more of a commitment to this kind of swift, uh, extra-legal mob justice, and he calls that rough justice. And that p as part of the American political development process, there was a 
kind of contestation between these two models of order. And ultimately, the rule of law due process model was able to carry the day, but only through um, a long period of contestation and also only by essentially legalizing the death penalty, what he calls legalized lynching. And so there were some important compromises on the way in the United States as well. And when you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in rough. I said, please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know, the way you put their hand over. Like, don't hit their head and they've just killed somebody. Don't hit their head. I said, you can take the hand away. Okay. I think a significant part of Trump's appeal is his enthusiasm and endorsement of a rough justice model of order. When he was campaigning, he would say, you know, I'm, you know, you would encourage people to beat up protesters in his rallies. He, uh, you know, demonizes the press in a way that, in, that, 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 that uh, tolerates, you know, violence towards the media. We've seen Trump repeatedly give pardons to people who have been convicted of particularly vicious, heinous, violent uh, crimes, both as uh, uh, people in the U.S. and as war criminals. Well, President Trump's decision to pardon four American security guards involved in the infamous Blackwater massacre has horrified survivors of this 2007 incident. Two of the youngest victims were just nine and 11 years old. He really operates by a statement that is, uh, you know, sort of for my friends, anything and for my enemies, the law. This is going to be, I think, a 10 or 20 year transition uh, in the United States of really trying to reassert the rule of law as a norm because there's such a long history, both in over centuries, but also in the last four years of endorsing extra legal tactics to advance one's political ends. One other really important way the events on January 6th are like a lynch mob is that historically a lynch mob wasn't just a private act of some citizens against, say, a single man accused of a crime. It's important to think of a lynching as a deeply social and political act that's sending a signal to everyone in a community about what happens if you violate certain kinds of norms. And so it's, it's very much about an assertion of a political order in which one group is dominant and another group is subordinate. I think it's important to see the events of January 6th not simply as a, a bunch of people engaging in lawless behavior, but very much as a dominant group, historically the uh, white majority in America, some significant segment of them are unwilling to concede that they lost an election to a multi-ethnic majority. I know the forces that divide us are deep and they are real, but I also know they are not new. Our history has been a constant struggle between the American ideal that we're all are created equal and the harsh, ugly reality that racism, nativism, fear, demonization have long torn us apart. 
Biden's message of unity is a smart one in the short run in that there's some evidence this will help to grow his coalition and win over some moderate and even right of center voters. Longer term, though, I'm not optimistic that it will help that much because of two main things. One, at the mass level, President Trump has repeated this big lie about election fraud so much that about half to three quarters of Republicans think Biden was elected illegitimately, despite all evidence to the contrary. The second important reason is that elites, both in the media and elected officials, have strong incentives to be the opposition party, and not just to oppose policies that they have specific differences on, but just to take a kind of scorched-earth opposition to everything, even if it's a policy that Republicans have supported in the past. Those two forces will mean that unity will become disunity and conflict very quickly. And that, I think, is the likely long-term uh, prognosis for American politics. Omar Wasso is an assistant professor at Princeton University. He was talking to our producer, Declan Conlon. Thanks to Omar, to Declan, and to Suzanne Lynch. That's all for this week. For more on this and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.